sure. <laughs> oh. Mervis. Mervis. What did you do with my uh, memory it's stick? In the back. So in the back? It's in the back. Did you put it on the hard drive so I can take it out, or I need to wait till the end of the lecture? Uh, I just left it on there. It's cheap. Otherwise, I'm sure to forget it. Do I have an hour or you want me to try to finish by two? Because it's like 10 after. One yeah, probably by two if you can. Try to finish by two. Okay. Okay. All right. All right, guys. So we're going to start with uh, Dr. Koenig's. Thank you. So, Dr. Koenig is going to give us a talk about procedural sedation, mainly in adults. Last week we had kind of a pediatric talk, so this will focus a little bit more on adults. I don't know if that's working. Not working. Yeah. So, I just use. Just uh, these arrows right okay. here. Okay. Okay. <coughs> Hi, everybody. You ready to learn about adult procedural sedation in the emergency department? All right. Exciting topic. So first, before we get into, well, there's some interactive cases, I wanted to mention uh, a very big win for emergency medicine on the political front. Last year, and you can see February 10th, 2011, the CMS made some changes to its guidelines, and there was some concern about whether or not we would be able to continue to do procedural sedation, but the American College of Emergency Physicians worked very hard and got this language up here that emergency medicine trained physicians have a specific skill set to manage airways and ventilation necessary to provide patient rescue, and so we are uniquely qualified to provide all levels of anesthesia, sedation, and uh, analgesia from deep to general, and we'll, we'll talk about what that means. So this was actually a very, very huge deal, and here's a copy of the letter that was signed by Dr. Schneider, who was the president of ASAP at this, this time, because there was some movement to try to look at taking this away from us. Now, this is uh, an authority and a privilege, but we have a responsibility to go along with this, because this is not a benign thing to do when we do procedural sedation on patients. So our hospital, along with other hospitals, have all these very intricate rules and documentation guidelines. In fact, if you go to the intranet in the hospital, there's a whole section on sedation and analgesia if you're interested in learning more about how this works. And I won't talk about this in detail, but this is from the education that went out after that looking at the types of documentation that we need to do. For example, doing a brief physical exam before we put the patient to sleep. And for example, monitoring of the vital signs. 
So please do take a look at these forms before you do procedural sedation and make sure everything is fully completed up to and including the recovery and the discharge. And again, I won't go through these in details. These are some of the slides from the training that's done. But the bottom line is that everybody signs every page of the form. So as a physician, we have to sign every page of the form. We have to make sure we do a pre-procedure assessment, inter-procedure monitoring, and post-procedure monitoring. All this paperwork needs to be completed. So you can't just put someone to sleep before you've looked at their airway and checked their heart and lungs. There are various scales, which I'll mention during the talk, that we look at to have a standardized way to look at the patient and you want to make sure that they're back to their baseline after they come out of the sedation. And some of the requirements for the faculty, some of the requirements for the nurses. This talks about, and we'll get into it more later, what you can do if they don't meet criteria, but it's an emergency. And also, if you don't feel safe doing procedural sedation, don't do it and call anesthesia. And then also there's quality assurance. So this is the form for that. So just to give you a sense of the very extensive paperwork and monitoring that we have when we do procedural sedation in the emergency department. So historically, <clears throat> what did we do? Well. What happened many years ago is you might have somebody, say, with a fracture that needs reduction, and the orthopedist would come down, and the emergency physician would push some kind of a benzodiazepine and some type of opiate, <clears throat> and you would have good sedating conditions. They would reduce the fracture. And then what happened when the orthopedist left and the fracture was reduced? What happened to the patient? They have all these meds on board. They've had this painful procedure. They have a long-acting benzodiazepine. They stopped breathing, and we had bad outcomes. We had respiratory arrests. We had deaths. And so we knew that we had to look at this in a lot more detail and have better procedures in place. So why would we even do procedural sedation? Why not just do brutane? Well, it's more comfortable for the patient. I mean, I'd certainly want to have procedural sedation if I had a large painful procedure. You get better procedure conditions. You're going to be better able to drain that large abscess if the person's asleep than in the, if they're moving it around or reduce that fracture or whatever you're doing. And it can decrease costs because otherwise you would have to take the patient to the operating room. You would have to have an admission to the hospital. When I was on sabbatical in London for 15 months, they were not using ketamine in children. So we had kids coming in with, say, a relatively minor facial lack, whereas here we just give some ketamine and do the procedure and send them home. They were admitting them, separating them from their parents, putting them under general anesthesia, having an admission to the hospital. So other models where you can't do procedural sedation cost a lot more and are a lot less comfortable for the patient. The key points that we want to look at when we're going to do a procedure are what are you trying to achieve? Are you trying to get sedation? Are you trying to get pain relief? What are you trying to do? Next, you have to wait until you have enough people. So if it's really busy, you've got a bunch of trauma patients coming in, you don't have anyone who can properly monitor the patient, you can't do the procedure yet. You have to wait. Then you have to prepare the patient, make sure you know what are their allergies, what are their medical conditions, 
it's really like doing a pre-op. Do they have family that have had problems with certain types of anesthetics? And the fourth main thing is to know your drugs. <clears throat> and I would encourage you during residency to try drugs you haven't tried before under supervision with somebody who has the experience so that instead of just using one drug all the time, you can learn how to use different types of drugs. <coughs> now, the terminology for sedation has been changing over time. Uh, we talk about things like conscious versus deep sedation, and it's really just a continuum or a spectrum. Anything from light sedation, where the person's still maintaining their protective airway reflexes and responding to commands, through to deep sedation, where ventilation may actually be compromised and the patient can't be aroused very easily. The current term that we use, you'll hear a lot of people still say conscious sedation, which is almost like an oxymoron sometimes because sometimes they're not conscious, right? So the current term that's used is procedural sedation. So if you want to be technically correct, that's what we should use. <coughs> Joint Commission has a lot of requirements. The hospitals, we have to go through all kinds of credentialing requirements. We have to take online exams. We have to show that we've done a certain number of procedures throughout the year and so forth. Um, so we're fortunate that we can still do procedural sedation because as you saw at the beginning, there was some movement to take that away and just let anesthesiologists do it. But there's a lot of things we have to do to maintain that privilege. And this continuum I sort of talked about from light to deep. Uh, technically, we, we don't do general anesthesia in the emergency department, but in reality, as you'll see, some of these drugs do really qualify for general anesthesia. So we have to be prepared to manage people's airways to make sure they're properly ventilating. Then we'll talk a little bit about something called neurolepsis and also dissociative anesthesia, which is ketamine is the dissociative anesthetic. A couple of scales for you to know about. This one is the Ramsey sedation scale. I mentioned you want to have something that's standardized where you can say what the patient is on the scale. And I won't read through all of these things, but it shows, again, shows you the sedation continuum. And it's a way to document where the patient is along that. And then this Aldrit scoring system where you can look at activity, respiration, circulation, consciousness, and color and total up the points and the score. The idea being that you want the person back to their baseline when you're finished with your procedure and when they've recovered. So if their baseline is they're only able to move two extremities, it's okay that you, again, only get one point. It's like, you know, doctor, I can't play the piano. Well, could you play the piano before? No. <laughs> you don't expect them to be better than baseline, but you expect them to be back to their baseline. Okay, so let's do some cases, the more interesting part. So let's say we have a 24-year-old female, jumped off a one-story building, found supine, yelling obscenities. She's intoxicated. She's been using methamphetamine. She's got a psych history. She's combative. You ever see patients like this? Tachycardic. And you're concerned about the safety of the resuscitation team. And the trauma surgeon might be saying, oh, let's just intubate her. What do you want to do? Anybody? I heard Haldol. How many people would use Haldol? Not even the person who suggested it? <laughs> so only one. Two. Okay. Merv, is you scratching or you're like, maybe, maybe not? Okay. What are the, what are the pros and cons of using 
Haloperidol in this patient? Okay, you can give it IM. Maybe she's moving around. You don't have any IV access. So you can start off IM until you get an IV. It's something you can do quickly. You can maybe avoid intubation. So what I like to do is I like to ask myself, how concerned am I about a head injury in this patient? She's moving all extremities equally. I don't notice any obvious contusions to her head. I'm, I'm not really super concerned about a head injury. Her pupils seem to be equal. So really I want something to sedate her and probably don't want to do an RSI if I can avoid it. So... Does she need sedation? Certainly, because she's a, a danger to the team and you can't assess her. Does she need RSI? Judgment call. I'm trying to paint a picture here of someone who probably doesn't, that you're not that suspicious of. You think it's more drugs, alcohol, and psych than anything else. So it is going to be a judgment call, but this might be a case where you can use a neuroleptic, with Haldol being one of them. It gives you quiescence, reduced motor activity, reduced anxiety, and indifference to your surrounding. Another issue with Haldol is it can lower the seizure threshold, so there might be a theoretical concern. You said you were concerned about head injury. How would that change your management? If I thought that, that she had a severe head injury and she was going to have to go to the OR for a craniotomy, I would probably just do an RSI to get her airway protected right then and there before the CAT scan. But if I thought this was somebody who's going to calm down and wake up, and maybe not even need to be admitted, that I can just sedate and maybe get the head CT and observe for a while. This is somebody I might try just giving the neuroleptic. <clears throat> okay, so you see here um, neuroleptics, haloperidol or haldol. Also, of course, you can have dystonic reaction. That's another thing to worry about. Something you, we used to use a lot, I put up for historical perspective, is droperidol. Dr. Langdorf, I'm sure, used to use that. And uh, it's now, unfortunately, got this black box warning, and we're not really using it, but it was a really great drug. Phenothiazines, another possible um, approach. And if you're really worried about the seizure threshold, you could try a benzo, but of course, that's going to cause potentially hypotension, respiratory depression, and so forth. <coughs> so, yes. So, isn't it true that almost all the deuterophenones and phenothiazines also prolong your QT interval? Not that I'm going to go credit that letter to the FDA and say, by the way, if you put a black box warning on Roperidol, it ought to be on the other ones too. I think it is. Hmm? I think there might be one for health. Yeah, there is. You'll you'll get a lot of concern about giving IV. Haldol. In fact, I'm not sure that it's even currently allowed in our institution, but there's, but there's a lot of literature on giving huge doses of it. Uh, it's, it's always a risk-benefit. You can always do things that aren't under the, the way it's authorized to be used if you understand the risks and benefits and you take the, the responsibility for doing that because intubating is not without risk either. So again, it's a judgment call. Yes, you will get some grief about using particularly IV Haldol in this day and age, but I can tell you there's lots and lots of experience with it in emergency medicine, and it is an option I think that we should consider in someone where we suspect it's, they are going to get better, wake up, and possibly go home and may not ever need that intubation.
Any other questions on that one? Okay. So choosing the right indication, identifying the right patient. Another thing we want to look at is the physiologic reserve. If I have somebody who's a bad COPD or, for example, that uh, is on home oxygen, it's probably not somebody I want to give anything that's going to decrease respiratory depression for. Make sure you have the right equipment, the right agent, and we'll talk about other choices. And one of the keys is titrate, titrate, titrate. So everybody's going to be reacting differently to different drugs. I, I give this example here from my residency. I had an 80-year-old Asian female who was only 40 kilograms who came in with an abscess that we had to drain. And I thought, I'll do it under some fentanyl. And I kept pushing and pushing and pushing, and she kept screaming and screaming in pain. And you don't really want to do this, but we actually got up to 700 micrograms of fentanyl, and she was still breathing. When she woke up from the procedure, which was very successful, no problems, got a good drainage of the abscess, we found out she was a smoking the opium pipe. <laughs> so, <laughs> did not realize this person was opiate dependent, but in fact, in retrospect, you just never know. And it's really to illustrate the case that you have to titrate because another person who looked like that, you might give 25 micrograms of fentanyl and they might stop breathing. So, there are suggested doses to start with, but just understand that people have different physiologic reserve, different dependencies, and the name of the game in almost all cases is IV titration. Ketamine is probably an exception where we can give it IM, but mostly it's titrating for everything. So what are you trying to achieve? Is this someone who has something that's, uh, you're gonna be doing a painful procedure and they need analgesia, or is it maybe just you need more sedation, like say for a cardioversion, although that, I guess that could be painful too. Do you need some anxiolysis? Sometimes I'll add in like a little bit of benzo, like a half milligram of Ativan or something like that if the person's very, very anxious. It's all a matter of balancing and titrating. You can use a single agent like ketamine. You can use a balanced approach like an opiate and a sedative hypnotic. You want to ask yourself, how much time do you need? And if I have a consultant coming to the department, say from orthopedics or surgery, who's going to be doing a procedure, I'll ask them, how much time do you need? Because if they need five minutes versus 15 minutes, it may change which agent I choose for the sedation. So think about what you're doing, and is the agent available? Particularly now, we're running into a lot of issues where we ran out of fentanyl, or we ran out of this, or we ran out of that. Or maybe you've used Atomidate here in your training, and now you're practicing out in a rural hospital, and you call for the Atomidate, and they look at you like you're crazy. So you need to know what you have in your practice setting. Here's a list of some clinical indications. Uh, I had to add uh, lumbar puncture. Where's Rod? <laughs> for you. I put that in last night. <laughs> with a patient who is, was difficult. <laughs> so there's many, many different uh, clinical indications for procedural sedation. Again, you have to think about what you're trying to achieve and whether you have the resources to do it. If you're working, for example, single coverage, you might not have the staff to do it, and you might have to send somebody to the operating room, or you might have to do it under local, etc. Contraindications. Obviously, if you have somebody who's clinically unstable, hemodynamically or respiratory-wise, or if the person refuses. 
you have to give the patient a choice. There's some risks and there's some benefits to doing procedural sedation. It's not without risk. Other considerations, you have to look at the current capacity of your emergency department. I like to do all of these procedures in the resuscitation room. Can you get away with doing it elsewhere? Sure, particularly if it's something like ketamine. But why? I mean, we have these resources. You want to be prepared for full resuscitation. Why not just do it in the resuscitation room? I know not all the faculty agree with that, but that would be my perspective. It's just, you know, it's like carrying an umbrella and it's not going to rain. <laughs> but if you don't have it, it will rain. <laughs> you know, like you are somewhere where you don't have the suction working or the intubation equipment or something that can turn into something you don't want. Prepare the patient. Uh, look at your, the physician's expertise. Again, I encourage you to get familiar with multiple different sedation agents now where you have people around you with experience. Look at your protocols. We talked about that at the beginning. So let's move on to the second case. This is a 23-year-old male IV drug user who has a large left forearm ad abscess. His vitals are stable. No past medical history. Last state four hours ago. You walk in and he's drinking a big glass of water in the room. What do you want to do? <laughs> Tyler says, bummer. Nerve block. Nerve block. Excellent. Excellent thought. What kind of nerve block? Brachial plexus? <laughs> so you could, so we're not going to talk today about regional anesthesia, but that would be an excellent option if you have the, the resources and the, the training to do that. An axillary block, we used to actually do those all the time in London. Uh, a beer block, we did where I trained. We don't do those here, but they sometimes still do them in the OR here. But say, since we're not talking about regional anesthesia, which would be an option, what kind of other sedation? I'm talking about not something you can do under local, but a very, very large abscess here. Well, think about it. What do you need? You need sedation and analgesia, right? How much time do you need? Not very much, five or ten minutes, short procedure. If you've got adequate analgesia, you can go in there, break up all the loculations, everything pretty fast. Ketamine. Okay, ketamine would certainly be an option. I will tell you, personally, I avoid ketamine in certain personality types, people with psychiatric disorders, perhaps drug-dependent patients with borderline personality disorders who might uh, not do so well on ketamine. That's a judgment call, though. It would be a reasonable option. Anything else? Just fentanyl? Okay, fentanyl for pain. What about for sedation? Fentanyl versed. Okay, that, that's an option and something that people used to do a lot. Do we have anything else that maybe member versed lasts longer? This we're saying we maybe need only five to ten minutes. Atomidate. Okay, fentanyl and atomidate. Well, Ativan's not going to put you to sleep unless you give a lot. <laughs> so, does he need sedation? We're saying ideally, yes. I'm trying to paint a picture where he does. Does he need to go to the OR? Well, if you're thinking about neck fash or something really deep. But let's say we decided we can do this one in the emergency department. I heard an uh-oh on the drinking the water. What about the NPO status? What do we want to do with that? Last meal was four hours ago. Uh -huh. drinking water. Uh-huh. How much water? I think it's fine. <laughs> so, you know, it depends how technical you want to get. I mean, one option is just 
to wait. And I've never had an issue when I explain to a patient or family, we want to wait until it's safe to do this procedure. People tend to understand that. And in reality, by the time you get everything set up and ready to go, some time has passed anyway. So water, not as bad as food, but probably since this is not something that needs to be done in the next five minutes, it's not like a pulse extremity or something like that, you could just wait. Drug choices, uh, we talked about uh, opiate and a benzo is one, except the benzo is long acting, so we probably have better options. Nitrous, we don't have here. We had where I train, it's kind of cool because um, the patient sort of self-titrates as they get more and more intoxicated. If you have them hold the mask, it'll fall off. There's some issues with it. You have to have a good scavenger system. Uh, I, we used to do it a lot for dressing changes when they come back in for the abscess repacking. And I remember one case where I had a guy come in for his dressing repacking. We were giving him nitrous, and I told his pregnant wife that she had to wait outside. And she said, well, they let me stay in here last time. <laughs> they gave this. But getting that sort of uh, exhaled nitrous without a really good scavenger system is not such a good thing in pregnancy. So we don't have it because probably we don't have a good scavenger system and the abuse potential, but they do have it in some places, even in some pre-hospital systems, by the way. And then what I would choose in this guy, what we talked about, is a sedative hypnotic plus an opiate. And there are several choices for sedative hypnotic. I heard atomidate, which is one of them. What about this NPO status? Well, this is something where we do have rules, but they're not really evidence-based. Because if you go back and look through the literature, in fact, liquids clear the stomach in about 20 minutes. This is in somebody with normal transit times. And fasted patients secrete gastric juice at 50 cc's an hour. So prolonged fasting decreases gastric pH. And what we're worried about is we're worried about somebody vomiting and aspirating acidic fluid. So we have these NPO guidelines that were developed when 1947 Mendelssohn or something like that with the pregnant ladies pushing up on their gastric contents. But they're probably not all that evidence-based. Still we're kind of stuck using them. So what does this mean to you? First of all, tell the patient don't eat or drink anything if you're even considering procedural sedation. I do this all the time. Otherwise, what happens? You come back, they've been waiting a while, they had to go through triage, they had to go back to the room, they had to wait for the doctor. Of course, all our door-to-dock times are under 30 minutes, but <laughs> and they're hungry. <laughs> so they send the family member out to get some food, and you walk in, and you're just about to do procedural sedation. You forgot to tell them not to eat, and they're eating a cheeseburger or something. So. Tell the patient, tell the nurses, tell the team, uh, tell the parents if it's a child. And the recommendations we're following are six hours for solids and two hours for liquids. So this guy who's drinking water, by the time you get everything set up, get your drugs and everything, it's probably going to be about two hours anyway on the liquids. So here's our patient, large abscess, and what we can use is something called a balanced approach, meaning we're using more than one drug balanced and mixed together. Uh, morphine used to be used probably more commonly, but fentanyl is shorter acting, so I think it's a better choice. Just remember it's 100 times more potent than morphine, so we have to think about the equivalent doses. There is something you can get called rigid chest syndrome. Anybody heard of that? Rigid chest syndrome. 
Usually it's at very high doses. That's why I said giving that 700 micrograms was not such a great idea <laughs> with rapid administration. If this does happen, this rare complication, what can you do for rigid chest syndrome? So you can't like ventilate the patient. Their chest is rigid. You can try your reversal agent, but you might need to actually intubate. And that's again why I say, let's just have them in the resuscitation room just in case. Meperidine or Demerol, we pretty much don't use anymore. I guess they use it uh, post-operatively for shivering still in our hospital. But there's a lot of toxicity from that, and it would not be my first choice. So that's the opiate piece of it. So that's to help the pain. Yes, question. Can you bag patients through a rigid chest episode? The question is, can you bag patients through the rigid chest? You may or may not be able to. So certainly if you can ventilate, you're you're good, but if you can't, you may have to actually paralyze and intubate, and that's the reason to have those skills and that equipment. When should you give pain medicine compared to when you're doing the procedure? So you have somebody with the, before the procedure starts, they already have pain, they have a fracture, they have an abscess. When should you give the pain medicine? You should give them analgesia before you sedate them, so you should try to make them Maybe not 100% pain-free, but at least uh, markedly reduced pain before you start sedating them. And you may need to give, and you probably will need to give, more pain medicine during the procedure, but you want to give them something for pain prior to the procedure as well, so you're not starting off with them in a lot of pain. Uh, benzos we talked about as an option, and way back in 2001, the Society for Academic Emergency Medicine published something from a survey saying it was the most commonly used drug in procedural sedation. I doubt that that's true today in 2012, but it used to be used very commonly. Remember, no analgesia if you use this, and you have these side effects we talked about, respiratory depression and hypotension. Valium's probably virtually never used at this point. Nitrous we talked about, a useful adjunct, but some of the contraindications including pregnancy, Anything air-filled like pneumothorax, intestinal obstruction, that can all get worse when you're displacing the oxygen with nitrogen. So the interesting drugs I think you should get some experience with, the sedative hypnotics. And we mentioned, we'll go through each of these. We mentioned atomidate, but there are some others. There's thiopental, methohexatol, which is a brevitol, which where I trained we used probably several times a day, and propofol. Now you're familiar with some of these because you use them for... RSI, right? But they can also be used sometimes or generally in, in lesser doses, in different doses for procedural sedation. So thiopental or methohexatol, they're very, very similar. They're in a category called ultra-short-acting barbiturates. You should avoid them with bronchospasm. They can make bronchospasm worse. They can cause hypotension. So if you have somebody who's say a multi-trauma patient and they're either hypotensive or you think they're systemically volume depleted, you want to avoid. But they're nice because they have quick onset and a short duration. So this patient with the abscess using Brevitol or Penthol would be really good options. Atomidate, you're familiar with it because we use it commonly for RSI. It's in a different class of drugs called an ultra-short-acting imatazole derivative. The nice thing about Atomidate, as we know from RSI, is it has minimal cardiovascular effects. So if you have somebody that you're worried about being hypovolemic or who's hypotensive, it's a good choice. 
One thing you will see, which we don't see so much with RSI because we're paralyzing them, but how many of you have used it for procedural sedation? Just a few. How many of you have seen myoclonic jerks with it? How many of you have seen really severe myoclonic jerks with it that are scary? So <laughs> it gets smaller and smaller numbers. But they can be pretty impressive, and you have to be aware of it. You know, if the nurse says, the patient's seizing. It's like, no, not so much. Myoclonic jerks. <laughs> Probably a couple minutes. I don't. I mean, how long? It must have been less than thirty seconds, but it was really scary. It's not typically a long time thing, but it can look quite scary. So you have to be prepared for it. And you know, sometimes also we have family there, so be sure not to freak out in front of the family. We see this, <laughs> okay? And then the other big argument that you'll see going on, particularly in other specialties, is this whole thing about the cortisol suppression. And it does indeed cause cortisol suppression. But again, we're always looking at the risks and benefits. So is it clinically significant to give a single dose of Atomidate to a patient in the emergency department for RSI or procedural sedation? The emergency medicine viewpoint is no. There are some people in other specialties who get very crazy about this and just say it's contraindicated, you can't give it, but it's one of the few that has these minimal cardiovascular effects, so it has a huge advantage for us in many cases. So something to be aware of, but unless you have somebody who's, say, chronically on steroids or has some kind of uh, disease where cortisol is an issue, it's not really something we need to be concerned about for a single dose. And, and notice... Um, the dose of Atomidate is usually about 0.15, so it's about half the dose typically that you give for an intubating dose if you're doing procedural sedation. Okay, propofol. Again, we use this in patients who are already intubated or sometimes for procedural for uh, RSI, but it can also be used for procedural sedation. It's unrelated to barbiturates, so it's a different drug. Probably everybody is aware of it now after the Michael Jackson incident. Apnea occurs very commonly, up to 40%. I actually don't personally like this drug for procedural sedation because of the apnea, because of the hypotension, and because it's so short-acting, you usually have to give an infusion or multiple boluses. Whereas if you use something like methohexatol or atomidate, you can usually get away with giving a single dose if you're doing a 5 to 10 minute procedure. It's nice. It's an anti-emetic. People wake up for it and say that from it, and they say they feel great. So that's one advantage. Some people looked at combining it with a small dose of ketamine. That would be a balanced approach. It's called ketafol. The literature right now is swaying a little bit away from that, necessarily being beneficial, but it's an option. Okay, but about patient preparation, we talked about the, uh, the sedation record. We want to know their current history and make sure, just like if you were going to the OR, you take an ample history, allergies, meals, past medical history, events leading up, and so forth. Ask yourself, is it okay to do this in the emergency department, or should this patient go to the OR? What about pre-oxygenation for procedural sedation? This is another controversial topic. I actually talked to Dr. Ron Walls about this to see what they're going to be putting in the next edition of Rosen, which is about to come out on this. Should we pre-oxygenate these patients? Yes. Yes. Everyone says yes. 
What the people that argue against pre-oxygenation, what is their argument? Cats are. I, maybe I want to make a follow-up comment. I'll let one of the residents. Oh, okay. What's the argument against? Do what do people say against doing pre-oxygenation? Y'all that. You don't detect it as fast, and they're not. Right. So, if you were only looking at the pulse ox, and you pre-oxygenated the patient, so they have a lot of reserve, they could start hypoventilating, and if you were only looking at the pulse ox, you might not notice that they weren't adequately ventilating. Well, hopefully we're looking at the respiratory effort. Hopefully we have the end tidal CO2. You had a talk on that last week, right? Monitoring going on. So hopefully we have some other parameters. And it's probably better for people to have this reserve. And how do you pre-oxygenate a patient? What are the options? 100% non-rebreather, 15 liters non-rebreather for how long? Five minutes, okay, so you want to get them, while you're getting everything set up, make sure you get them on that non-rebreather for five minutes. If you're in a super hurry, maybe you have a pulseless extremity or something, and you don't, you literally don't want to wait the five minutes, or you have to intubate someone, you, you literally don't want to wait the five minutes, what's your other option? Four tidal volume breaths with 100% oxygen. So you had a comment? Yeah, so my fault was, now that we have the end tidal, I really agree with what you're saying, that, um, Give yourself that reserve because you're going to detect that early hypoventilation or early apnea with the CO2, and then you have more time to address it. Because the old argument was that, oh, the pulse ox won't change. And then uh, we had a, a patient last week where they weren't awake enough to breathe, and so we actually did assisted ventilations. Um, I think Sharice is the resident, and uh, that made a big difference. So that's something to think about, too. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the, uh, yourself and the respiratory therapist to help breathe with their respirations. You're really augmenting their respirations. And made a, yeah, made a big difference um, with oxygenation. They're still breathing on their own, but it just wasn't sufficient. Okay. Are we having respiratory therapy come to all these? Procedural sedation, no. Because it seems like every time we do it now, I can't remember ever having respiratory therapy come to these. Are other people doing that? The plan for deep sedation that they're supposed to come because they either come or come and bring the entitled CO2. Oh, for the entitled CO2 because we don't have it. Okay. Well, we have one in the UD, but that's what we decided to My understanding is we need it for deep sedation. But for my, if the plan is for moderate sedation, no. So initially, I've been encouraging those of you who have worked with me people to use the end tidal CO2 and initially I had to call respiratory because we didn't have it. More recently I've been able to get it just by asking the, the trauma tech and the, the hospital policy is now they should come if it's deep sedation. Because it's the hospital policy. You missed the first part of the lecture. <laughs> I don't know whether that's policy or not. Okay. The other thing that's advantageous with having respiratory there, because I've had about 50-50, is uh -huh. especially if you're doing a straight propofol thing. Like, here it doesn't matter because there's an attending and a residence. You've got two people that feasibly can manage an airway and bag valve mask a patient, but if you're out in the community doing this by yourself, I've had quite a few people, like that 40% apnea with propofol has certainly been my experience. Where right, you're supposed you to have, have to one person managing the sedation and one person doing the procedure. So. If you're out in the community, it would make sense. And we'll have to clarify whether it's actual I, policy. I, 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 
Okay. Moving on. So the other thing is to consider pre-medication. Again, if I have somebody who's very anxious, I might give them a touch of a benzo. We want to try to get their pain under control. And then consent. And I put this no coercion here because a lot of times you'll hear people say, oh, like the surgeons will say, we can't get consent from the person because you gave them an opiate. And to me, it's again all about titration and balancing because if you're in severe pain, you're not thinking clearly either. And if you say, oh, just sign this consent form and then I'll give you a pain medication, that's almost like coercion. So they have to be able to to mentate, they have to be able to understand, but I wouldn't say that you have to say, oh, I can't get consent because I gave them something for pain. That doesn't make sense to me. Okay, so case three. Dr. Walsh said he went back and forth with the author of this chapter, and they came to a consensus on the wording where they were concerned about what the trial lawyers would be doing in terms of interpretation, and the, they're basically strongly suggesting the preoxygenation. He feels very, very strongly about preoxygenation for the reasons that uh, that we discussed and the fact that we have this other monitoring. So there are still some people out there that will object to it, but his feeling was he strongly suggests preoxygenation, and the wording in the textbook is going to suggest that, but give a little bit of wiggle room in terms of the medical legal implications. Is the suggestion to continue on the non-rebreather while under sedation as well? I don't believe that was discussed. He just sent me one packet passageway of what was going to be published, so there might be another portion later, uh, but I don't believe they discussed that per se. Okay, so next case is a 74-year-old man, COPD history. He's got an SVT of 200 with mild chest pain. He's slightly confused, altered diaphoretic. He last ate an hour ago. So think again, what are you trying to achieve? What does this person need? What do you want to do with this guy? OR. <laughs> what does he need? Cardioversion? Thank you very much. So it's hard to paint a picture on a slide, but I'm trying to paint a picture of somebody who's unstable, who needs immediate cardioversion. I know Dr. Langdorf doesn't want sedation. He just wants the painful shock. But if it's me, I want sedation, <laughs> just so you know. So assuming that we do decide to go ahead and give this guy sedation, what kind of choice might be good? Accommodate. Yeah, you're all over that one because cardiovascular stable works fast. Okay, so he needs immediate intervention. He's got some concerning history and he just ate. So what is this E right here? What do we do? You know, the, we'll go through it. The American Society of Anesthesiology categories, one, two, three, four, five. We'll go through in a second. What is this E right here? Emergency. Emergency. So obviously, if you have somebody with a pulseless extremity or somebody who's unstable, somebody who needs to be tended to immediately, we can't say, oh, sir, just wait until your NPO a little longer because <laughs> it's not safe. It's not safe not to do anything either. So what we do is, again, risk-benefit, and we document, and we call it an emergency. So we add that E to our classification. 
So here is what the ASA classifications look like. This is what they use in the operating room all the time, going from one to actually there's a, a sixth category. So one is normal healthy, two mild systemic disease, three severe systemic disease, four incapacitating, five moribund, and six we don't usually use at brain dead for organ donation. I hope we're not doing procedural sedation on them. So which of these do you think generally, other than in an emergency situation, would be candidates for procedural sedation in the emergency department versus we'd want anesthesia to do it in the OR? Two. One and two. So generally I would say I would feel comfortable one and two. And sometimes we'll get pressure by other services like orthopedics or trauma. Oh, you know, I have this trauma patient with a hip dislocation who's 98 years old with bad CAD and COPD and unstable vital signs and a head injury, but can't you just do some procedural sedation? And my answer is going to be no. <laughs> we don't feel it's safe. So don't get bullied into doing it if you don't think it's a good candidate, unless it's something where it really is an emergency has to be done immediately and then make sure you document that well. Question? Yes. So then is it a subjective call amongst the practitioner severe or is it a pretty clear guidelines for mild? Between the ASA 2 and 3? It's a little bit subjective. I don't know the anesthesiology literature well enough to know how well defined, but like diabetes versus diabetes out of control, you know, like if they're in DKA versus well-controlled diabetes might be an example. I decline to do what you just think fracking if this location scenario, that's the most common one. Yeah, because so it doesn't have to be done immediately. It's usually a prosthetic hip, so it doesn't matter a whole lot. And so let, them, let it stay out, manage the pain, but they can do it in the OR later. Do you recall it, why you decline? The patient was, you know, an 80-ish plus and had lots of comorbid factors. Lack of physiologic reserve, like we talked about. It was maybe not 98 and crumping, but certainly a fragile, old, old person. Probably the coronary disease. Just, if, just think about what's best for the patient, and you'll always be fine. <laughs> so typically, I would only do a one or a two unless it's life-threatening. If it is, you want to make sure you put the E for emergency examples. We gave the unstable cardio version pulseless extremity. I had a, a young woman with a lower extremity dislocation and no pulses peripherally who had just eaten and we had to do it right away and I used ketamine and it went very very well. Okay so this patient again case three unstable needs cardioversion. Automidate would be my first choice as well. In terms of equipment and personnel we want to have, as we said, the right place, all the right monitoring, including end tidal CO2. You guys talked about this last week. I'll tell you, five years ago, hardly anybody was using this. So this is a relatively new type of intervention. Um, some people also talk about this bispectral index like they use in the operating room because the Joint Commission says you're supposed to have the same standard of care no matter where you do the procedure. Not something I think that's readily available in most emergency departments yet. Resuscitation, including reversal agents like naloxone. If you're using benzos, what would you want? Ooh, I'm getting weekly updated. <laughs> if you're using benzos, what would you want for a reversal agent? Flumazenil. Okay, we try not to use those because we are going to titrate 
but if you overshoot, you want to have that certainly available. Uh, the right kind of personnel, somebody to do the procedure and somebody to do the procedural sedation. Patient has to recover, just like any other operating procedure, and we have to give them appropriate discharge instructions. Okay, case, please. The, uh, sorry. How long are we waiting? Are we just making sure they can tolerate POs, basically? So the question is, what's the criteria for discharge? You want them back to their baseline yeah. mental status. So you want them back awake. What about PO challenge? I don't necessarily routinely do a PO challenge. And the other thing where I might bend the rules a little bit is if you have a child and you've given them ketamine and now it's bedtime, it's kind of hard to wake them up completely sometimes. So I'll talk to the parents and say, are you comfortable taking little Johnny home, even though he may not be fully awake and running around playing, because at that point, usually, <laughs> you're not going to wake them up. And I know the drug has worn off, and I know they're fine, vital sign-wise, and so forth. But basically, you want them back to their, their baseline. I don't know if any data suggesting that you ha would have to necessarily do a PO challenge, per se. With ketamine, they sometimes will have a little bit of nausea and vomiting after they wake up. And so it's nice to try to make sure that they can as a routine for all of my sedation, no, I can't see that that's yeah, And I always tell the parents with ketamine, um, we're going to get to that in a minute, but that uh, data's changing a little bit, but it used to be about 10% of them would vomit. But it's not an issue because after they have already woken up and they're protecting their reflexes, and that way, if they go home and they vomit, they go, oh, the doctor told me that, so it's not unexpected. We appreciate it too. Like I've had people, I called people the next day and they said, "Oh, they vomited." Just like you said. <laughs> so smart, you know. It's like the old days where you saw the coplic spots and you knew the measles was coming. Oh, doctor, just like you said, the rash came out. Okay, so I'm trying to hurry up a little bit because you wanted me to finish by two rather than taking an hour, right? So, 35-year-old woman, no past medical history, 20-centimeter deep thigh laceration, stable vital signs, really deep laceration. It's going to take. A long time. I remember we had some medical students the other day who took like four hours doing a laceration like this. Ketamine. Okay. So you can look at all different kinds of options. You should think about domestic violence and anybody with an unexplained wound or it doesn't fit the picture. And here is a case for ketamine, which Dr. Schultz has an entire lecture on. But it's a, a beautiful drug because it gives amnesia, analgesia, and sedation all in one drug. Huge worldwide safety record. How many of you have not used ketamine yet? Okay, make sure you use it soon. <laughs> yeah, it's also used as a street drug, structurally related to PCP. They describe it as the lights are on, but nobody's home. They're looking around. If you have the parents in there, make sure they know the kid might move around randomly. That's okay. You'll see nystagmus. But they're feeling no pain. Unlike all the other drugs, if you do give it IV, this is something you want to push slowly. You can have respiratory and even cardiac arrests if you just push it really quickly, like the, the other drugs that we talked about. It will increase heart rate and blood pressure, so don't give it to anybody who can't tolerate an increase in heart rate and blood pressure, like somebody with bad coronary artery disease, for example. Okay, so just for the sake of time, we'll move over that quickly to the last case. 86-year-old man, hit by car, altered 
open radius fracture, very strong cardiac history, multiple medications. Ortho says, just put him to sleep so I can reduce the fracture. Okay. <laughs> I heard OR. So yeah, this is somebody that you would prefer goes to the OR. Not really a candidate for ED sedation. You need to forget about the extremity fracture and concentrate on your ABCs, resuscitate him, stabilize him. Think about CT if he's stable enough in the OR to manage the fracture, which is probably the least of his problems. Okay, so reviewing sedation agents. What are you trying to achieve? Sedation, analgesia, amnesia, neurolepsis. Do you want to use a single agent like ketamine or a balanced approach like an opiate and something like atomidate or <laughs> pentothal? Give them analgesia first, then sedation. We talked about all these different agents, neuroleptics, opiates, benzo, sedative, hypnotics, inhalational, and dissociative agents, i.e. ketamine. Summary of key points, ask yourself what you're trying to achieve. Sedation is a continuum. How much time do you need? Is this something you really want to do in the emergency department or should the patient be going to the OR? Wait until you have enough personnel. You need to communicate with the nursing colleagues on that. Prepare the patient just like you're doing a pre-op. Pre-oxygenate, there are conflicting recommendations, but it's moving more today towards definitely doing it. Monitor them, know your drugs, be familiar with one or two agents, and titrate to effect. Okay, so I was asked to do three questions, so here's your question number one. Tell me when to move on. Okay. Everybody got that one? <laughs> I'm trying to paint a picture of an unstable patient, diaphoretic, chest pain, hypotensive, tachycardic. Okay, question number two. Everybody ready? Question number three. What about like um, pre-medicine? It's the same. You know, there's a lot of post-procedural dodging and vomiting. Okay, if you have somebody that has nausea or anxiety or pain, you definitely want to pre-medicate them. I don't think it's necessary to pre-medicate for ketamine because they might have vomiting after they wake up. There are some people that have combined things like atropine with ketamine because of all of the secretions. That's pretty much not so much done anymore. There's some people who give benzos, particularly a small dose in adults with ketamine. Uh, personally, 
if I have somebody who's a little bit anxious, I might not use ketamine or I might give a, a little pretreatment with a small dose of benzo. But I believe all drugs have side effects and to keep it as simple as possible, and I tend to go with as few drugs as possible. Carl. Not a sedation dose of benzo, though. So a small dose. <laughs> I just want to make sure they know that. Are you prior to emergence or after how much? So the, the thought is that in older children or adults to give a, a small dose of a benzo to help uh, attenuate the emergent yeah. reaction that might otherwise occur. The emergence reaction, by the way, is very overrated. There's a huge worldwide literature on the safety of ketamine actually with minimal to no <coughs> monitoring, like thousands of patients on floors of a gym in rural Alaska getting dental procedures. Um, and as long as you don't use it in somebody that where it's contraindicated, which is only a very small percentage of people or very young children, say with URIs or something, you're not going to get in trouble as long as you don't push it too rapidly IV. So any other questions at all? Okay, thank you very much.